This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. In our look at immigration in the lead-up to the election, NBR's Dieter Deboney spoke to Ellie Fleming, an associate with Pitt and Moore in Nelson, and someone who works exclusively in immigration law. She started by asking her if New Zealand had a problem with the way it viewed immigration. I think for a long time we have been looking um, through a lens of protecting jobs and protecting New Zealanders um, and making sure that you know New Zealanders ha have opportunities and that their opportunities are not um, taken away by migrants. Um, and that's, um, you know, during certain economic times, that's a valid, valid view to have where there's high unemployment, the economy is in strife, but at a time where unemployment rates are low, where um, employers struggle to, to get workers, um, you need to have a system that is robust and that can change. You need to have uh, people open to new ideas and to look overseas and look at what other developed nations like Canada are doing um, and to, to, to learn from their experience. Um, Australia and New Zealand are very similar in that New Zealand often looks to see what Australia is doing just because we're so close um, and Australia's got the bigger market. Um, and New Zealand needs to be looking at what Australia is doing because a lot of Kiwis are leaving again. We've got the brain drain again. Uh, a lot of them going to Australia, a lot of them going overseas to UK, further afield for opportunities. Um, and and it's an easy win for, for example, for Australia because they've, I don't know if you know, but they've done a major review this year of their migration system and they've come out and said, look, we're gonna be in real big trouble if we keep going at the rate we're going, we need more skilled workers. Yeah. And they've, you know, committed to reforming their system, which is going to take time because their system is much more complicated than what we've got in New Zealand. So we've got Australia who frequently, and it's an easy win for them to take New Zealanders because they speak the same language, we have the same culture, it's easy to assimilate, it's easy for them to arrive with their families and, and get a job and start working in any job and, and to stay indefinitely that is always going to be there. New Zealand's always going to have a challenge of replacing the, the people that we are raising here, that we're training here. If we can't make it attractive for them to stay here, they're going to be going to other countries like Australia or Canada or UK. And we need to have a plan in place to make us attractive, to bring in other people from other countries to, to fill that gap and, and also to address the other shortages. Tying people to employers generally has is, is highly problematic. We know there's been a lot of um, talk in the media recently about migrant exploitation. Um, and if the government is serious about addressing migrant exploitation and making New Zealand more attractive um, to skilled people, um, to migrants in general, they need to look at is this current system working and um, is there a better way of um, managing the relationship between migrants and New Zealand employers and really looking at whether it is good practice tying people to employers. Mm. I mean, yeah. I do wonder if it's a philosophical thing because, for example, you will know this too, that Australia signed a free trade agreement with India and yeah. one of the reasons they were able to do that is because they said anyone who comes here as a student 
gets the right to live here. That's my understanding of it anyhow. I hope I've got that right. Um, but, you know, that seemed quite visionary to me and I couldn't understand what, why are we so seemingly so reluctant to do that kind of thing here? I don't know. I mean, there could be reasons to do with exploitation and reasons to do with philosophically, like you said, what is the purpose of someone coming to study here? Should it just be that they want to gain knowledge and then they need to take that knowledge back to their home country? Or is it seen that, you know, people who can afford to pay for education then get the privilege of being accessing residents in New Zealand? Mm. Because, you know, it's it's quite expensive. And again, those requirements have been increased. You've got to have more money. You've got to show you've got more uh, savings um, to be able to study in New Zealand than you did a couple of years ago. And, and then again, you, you know, there's no clear pathway to residence just because you've studied here. You still need to show so many other things but the higher level of your education the easier it will be for you to have a pathway to residence you will be able to claim points and and depending on your age you know there's other factors but um again it could be just not lack of planning and lack of foresight um to say these people are coming they're gaining um qualifications if if and if we particularly identify there's a shortage in certain areas like medicine engineering we they're here studying for that surely we'd want them to stay so that they can then fill the gaps in those jobs but we don't seem to we, we don't seem to be um connecting that yeah and then again we want them to stay and how 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 can we make that experience and for them to want to stay here and one of the ways what people always ask me after they get residence is how can we bring our parents here we want to be together we want our parents to support us to to help us raise our kids and have a life and have stability yeah. so and we're not again we're not connecting that we're not facilitating people to to be able to you know really highly skilled people who we value who we say okay yes um, we recognize you've got the skills you've got this pathway to residence, we're not making it easy for them to bring their parents to right. New Zealand. We're making it really, really hard. Yeah. What about operationally for someone like yourself? Um, I mean, there's been a lot of criticism about Immigration New Zealand being too slow. It's not, you know, not fit for purpose in a way. I don't know, these myriad complaints. I've heard them even at um, select committee level. Um, how do you find the experience of working with Immigration New Zealand and what could be improved in that arena? I think at the moment their biggest um, flaw is um, the leadership. Um, leadership at the, you know, I'm not talking necessarily at the, at the, from the very top, very senior level, but operationally the, the managers, the managers who manage the different branches and the managers who interpret the policy. In the seven years that I've been here, I've never seen such poor leadership as the past year and last year. There seems to be a total unwillingness to recognize when mistakes are made. There's a culture of backing up um, your staff, uh, no matter how incorrect their interpretation of the rules are. Um, and you can't get through to anyone. You can't change anybody's mind. You can't reason with them. It's really disheartening and concerning. And there's only so much you can do because there is no rights of appeal for temporary visas. And so there's no real incentive for um, the decision makers 
to improve the quality of their decisions because they're not being scrutinized and there's no oversight and there's no feedback. So they can pretty much do what they like and then there's very little repercussions. Um, you can complain to the ombudsman, um, but the ombudsman's powers are pretty um, weak and the investigations often take a really long time. People can't afford to wait around for months and months. Um, they run out of options and in the end, the compromises, the ombudsman, the ombudsman seems to, you know, liaise with the immigration and, and come up with a halfway house of a compromise that doesn't solve the, or, or, or provide, you know, restitution or time, the money that the, the person said to spend to get to that point to fight, to prove that, you know, there were serious problems in the process and, and that serious errors were made mm -hmm. um, really need independent a body like a tribunal to review temporary visa decisions to improve decision making. Ellie um, what would you do tomorrow like in your from your vantage point you can see what's going wrong both operationally and and perhaps you know at an overarching level as well what would you do tomorrow if you had the power to make the system better? I would make sure that skilled migrants um, can be reunited in New Zealand with their parents. I would make that process a lot easier and increase um, the cap. I would do away with the current lottery system because it's not fair um, and it's not going to work. It's it's going to discourage a lot of skilled people from leaving. I would overhaul the current um, business visa system which also has a pathway to residence it's broken um, and it's in dire need of repair we want to encourage uh, small and medium-sized businesses to be um, established particularly in the regions um, it is a missed opportunity for new zealand that that category i would also have a look at at the current accredited employer work visa scheme there's no point having a system that's not working and a system that's um, not achieving its purpose. Um, my preference is to do things properly. Um, and so even with the accreditation process, if you're gonna require employers to be accredited, then there needs to be adequate resources to be invested in that to make sure that the employers that are getting accreditation are um, deserve the accreditation, not a halfway house where it's just lip service. We've created the system and we're quickly running through it and we're just pumping it out and we're just making sure um, that things are moving, but we're not really checking for quality. We're not really running checks. Um, and also have a look at whether um, tying um, migrants to individual employers is good practice mm -hmm. if we're serious about um, reducing migrant exploitation and increasing the um, penalties um, for exploitation of temporary and unlawful workers in New Zealand. And that can include extending it to cover education providers where they're exploiting international students.
Beehive Banter, with a five-point plan for your listening or watching pleasure. Grow our customers. Be a centre of excellence. Be a media leader. Harness our expertise and boost our offering. And by the looks of things, Labour has stolen all of our ideas with their five-point plan. Remarkably similar, Brent Edwards. Grow an export-led economy with a strong global reputation. Turn New Zealand into a centre of excellence for agri- sustainable agriculture and ag tech. Be a global leader in renewable energy. Harness New Zealand's digital creativity and expertise and boost our premium tourism offering. Where did they get those from, eh? Well, well not from us, Grant. You know that. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you wouldn't expect too much different from a political party you know, campaigning at the election. Um, I mean, it's interesting. One of the things, though, is you know the, the sort of boosting the tourism offerings. Um, announcing that as part of the policy at the same time that just last week they announced a cut in funding for marketing tourism overseas, which I think has caused a little bit of consternation within the sector, which is already struggling still to rebuild and recover after COVID-19. And in fact, the government is going to cut back on spending to actually promote New Zealand as a market, as a place to come for overseas visitors. So, you know, some sort of anomalies within all of those policies. A uh, hundred mil on Agritech and a visit to India by the PM in the first 100 days, which is hundreds of days earlier than Christopher Luxon if he becomes PM. Yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of, I suppose, interesting. And I spo- in a way, um, <laughs> two things. I mean, politically, Chris Hipkins is responding, I guess, to that criticism that Labor hasn't done enough about the India relationship. OK, Although, well, Labor hasn't done enough well, about the India In fact, no, Damien O'Connor, he basically... He basically, earlier on, in, in the last few months, said, oh, look, you know, we've kind of backtracking a little bit he's been over there but he's just said it's a tough deal to get through and don't expect dairy well, like, well, well he's been quite realistic I mean New Zealand well yeah but now New well, Zealand but had, now the Prime Minister's not being realistic well no yes what he's saying is the chances of getting a free trade deal with India anytime soon are pretty pretty slim it's a very long term deal but Actually, O'Connor's been there twice this year. The yeah. Most recently, as last week, so he, he's not given up on the place. And we, you know, you had that fifty-strong business delegation go there. O'Connor went over at the same time and gave support to them. Now you've got Chris Hipkins, and I know the people on that delegation were hoping, whoever is the prime minister, that they will get across to India sooner rather than later, because they think there's a bit of momentum building in terms of just developing a a more positive economic and trade. Oh, yeah, but it just sounds like I'll take your one year and. I'll beat you with 100 days. Yeah, and then, well, what's, someone come, well, I'll go in the first well, two the, weeks. The interesting thing, actually, though, on all of this is because, I mean, Christopher Luxon has made a big thing of the, of the India sort of relationship, but particularly in the context of saying that for the last six years, this government has been very insular. He said, And he said that if nationals in government, they'll get their trade minister out travelling widely all the time. Well, you know, O'Connor's travelled widely. He travelled a number of times through the COVID outbreak when he had to then come back and spend, you know, two weeks in MIQ and the like. And actually this government, you know, I mean, they have. They've signed, what, three, I think, new trade deals and they've upgraded four others. You know, in the terms of outcomes, actually, on trade, it, it's hard to fault what the government has managed not, to do over the I'm not faulting it. I'm just saying, why this big rush for India all of a sudden? Anyway. Well, because everything else has been done. It's the next oh, big... Oh, OK. The, it's the next big market, well, I know. you know. Yeah, I know. They're going to take China people, and... Most yeah. people, you know. Yeah. Anyway, Labor also launched in a brilliant alternative to Nationals tax cuts, extended free basic dental care to the under-30s, phased and fully in place by 2026. You know, that's the year lots of other things might come into place. 
Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting policy. I mean, it's been an issue for years and years. And when, when you think about it, you do have to think, why isn't dental care much more widely available? Because we know a lot of people well, this can't, is Green's can't policy. afford it. Well, it's not Green's policy because Green's would go all the way. But what Chris Hipkins says as well, that's great, but it's not affordable. So we'll do it in small chunks with the ultimate goal and you know, is to give everyone free dental care. When that will happen, who knows? Um, but well, you and I won't have any teeth left by then. No, but true. <laughs> but but you know, it's. I mean, one one of the arguments that they're putting through this election campaign is, you know, they're going to compare sort of nationals tax cuts putting money into people's pockets with, hold it, well, we're going to give you free dental care off if you're aged under 30, yeah. but you'll have to wait until 2026 and we're giving you half price public transport for teenagers and free public transport for kids and that, and all that will be gone. So those are the sorts of, I guess, decisions people make. You know, they get a bit more money in the pocket or they take some this cheaper public transport for some people, cheaper dental care for some people, free dental care. I mean, it's that's, that'll be the answer. I see Labor's also going to get more tough on gangs and get some extra police in now. Gosh. Well, and they make the point. After how long? Well, well, they make the point. After how long? Well, they put 1,800 more police. No, they haven't put 1,800 more well, people on the line. That, well, does, that does back, back yeah, room people included on that and, and churn. I, well, but even with churn, you know, you can argue about the numbers of how, how many are on the front line, but they have clearly increased the number of police officers Why now? on the street. They've had all this time in and our, in our as they just point before the election, they're going, as they, as oh, they point out, under we'll the pre- stuck As they the point out, under the previous national government, 30 police stations were closed. I mean, it is an interesting argument uh, because, you know, they have done things where they they have strengthened the police. And, of course, why are they doing saying this now? Well, I don't know if <laughs> oh, you have perhaps not noticed, but there's an election coming up. Oh, yeah, and we're, they we're in a campaign. They camp- could have announced this at any point, so, so, couldn't they? I know, but they're going right. to keep it until an election <laughs> like, campaign. If, if they'd announced it weeks and weeks ago and then they had nothing to announce, you would be asking why haven't they got anything True. to announce. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the other side of town, National is supercharging EVs superstructure announcement, 10,000, 10,000 EV charging stations by 2030. In fact, the Nats are going to flood the market, they say, with renewable energy. Flood it, Brent. That'll be good for the hydro lakes. Well, I, I'm not sure that they're <laughs> thinking it'll be hydro. I mean, I think they're, they're talking about... No, it was about, a play on the word, they're yeah, going to flood it. OK, flood oh, oh, sorry, I missed that. I, some, sometimes your, you know, sense of humour just goes over top of it. Yeah. But anyway, um, they've said, and, and, they've, and again, they've said this before, but this is policy that they're going to free up um, the planning process so that it's going to be much easier. I think they're saying that, you know, Renewable energy projects like wind farms, solar, should be consented within one year. So then they can get on and build it. The government says it's trying to do the same sorts of things. The argument is, well, it's changes to the Resource Management Act. Do that or not? National says no. It would repeal the RMA within the first 100 days. So while Chris Hipkins might go to India National <laughs> <laughs> um, and but not quite clear what will come in its place, but, but they have said that, yes, they would give special privilege, if you like, to renewable energy projects so they can be built much, much quicker. And, you know, the, the Infrastructure Commission has made this point that the resource, the consenting of these sorts of projects will need to speed up a lot well, if yeah. the country is to meet its 2030 and then 2050 Yeah, I mean, I'm just talking targets. about the convenience. I, mean, I know someone who bought a new car in Auckland, it took them 14 hours to get down to Wellington because by the time they found somewhere where they could plug in, they were fourth in queue and they had to yeah. sit there and wait for three hours. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the policy um, will be, um, you know, one that I think a lot of people, 
particularly those who have EVs or are buying them, will really appreciate if they're wanting to travel long distances. That's right. Um, and by the um, way, will make some sort of difference. Yeah, tell you what will make a difference. The Ute Charge acts, so that'll make a difference to the farmers. Also acts as the, oh, wait a minute, clean car discount. Not needed, apparently, because if you want a Tesla, you'll still buy a Tesla anyway at the higher price because you've obviously got lots of money. Yep. Just as I was about to buy one, not now. Well, not actually, now. That, you know, I mean, there has been some criticism of that with people sort of arguing, well, at the time that they're putting in all of these EV charges, they're actually put, you know, they're not having an incentive for people to buy EVs, so you won't get as many people, because it's been... Build them and they will come. Well, right? it'd be interesting, because it was clear that the um, discount has helped increase the sales of EVs. Now, if National scraps it, Will it stop people buying EVs? I'm not sure. Uh, also now, uh, the Nets have got a great new walk that they've announced. 80K, do you think you could manage it? No. Uh, new pole out. I've been to- through that, no. the Molesworth, so it's a great uh, bike, bike trip. Beautiful. Yeah, I'll look online. Uh, a new pole out, or in fact two of them this week, Labour either at 24 or 26. Either way, it's not good. No. I mean, they they wouldn't have looked at those polls with any any satisfaction. Um, no. And, yes, I mean, they, you know, they're in, they're in a real struggle to try and get themselves, I guess, a result back in the game, which will give them potentially an opportunity where they might be able to like, cobble together some sort of. But equally, I think those polls also show that New Zealand First is very much in the game. Yes, I didn't want to mention that, but that is the case. Speaking of Nats, they've been hurt by the bad, bad, bad CTU people who attacked Christopher Luxon in that ad campaign. It's not fair, they say, but the Prime Minister said, build a bridge. <laughs> I think it's a bit of pot and kettle, isn't it? I mean, I, <laughs> well, yes, I think it I, probably is. You had to presume that, because uh, when they went sort of ballistic about that, they essentially gave the CTU campaign a lot more, you know, coverage um, and you have to think that at that point they were facing quite a bit of criticism over their tax policy and whether some of the things they'd put up would actually raise the money that they said they would raise like the foreign owners tax you know tax on people buying uh, New Zealand property and that sort of and whether it was done just really as a diversion because um, really would you have got upset with what I mean you know, no, the, but everyone said everyone knows it's the government's really... Well, but, but it's but the CTU, but I mean, at the but, end of the day, the when C- you see the CTU do something, everyone sits there well, and goes, well, obviously, the, the government will be... Well, sorry, Labor will be smiling. And say when the Taxpayers' Union or no, something not, does something, it's yeah. national because of the same links? And uh, we change the subject. Now, next week, the <laughs> wait is over. It's pre-food day, Tuesday, or doom-gloom Tuesday, as I like to call it. What will a bad result mean for all of these policies we're hearing? Um, well, I, I think from um, from Labor's point of view, they're going to use it to say, well, you know, National can't afford this stuff, you know, the kind of and 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 they're going to be saying, look, we've, I think, because I think the numbers, the expectation is the numbers will still stay, will still show that their spending is within what they had budgeted for, but it's the income income which is down, and so and they'll argue, of course, that that's result of you know, international things, the economies, all that sort of stuff. So there'll be a big argument between Labor and National. You know, National will obviously um, blame Labor for that. It's all their fault because they've run the economy into the ground. That's why companies aren't making... So, you know, we'll we'll get that. Uh, Whether anyone out there voters any going to be any the wiser, not sure. Here's what all the voters are going to hear. Things are bad. That's what they're going to hear. Things are bad. 
Now, Brent, for technical reasons, we won't be here next week. But we will see you uh, the week after that, which is one week away from when you can actually vote, and a lot will, won't they, before the election day? Yeah, they, they will. I mean, that's and that's why this campaign, you know, you think it started early in a way, but it's, you know, when it started, it was only four weeks to early voting. So, and at the last election, I think it was about three quarters of people voted yeah. before the actual day. Yep. And that number is probably likely to go up. So, yep. yeah, I mean, probably by the time you get into the last week or two of the election campaign, the result might already be sewn up. Yes, it very well might be. Thank you, as usual, for listening or watching. We appreciate it. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. government's well-being approach is receiving scant attention in the election campaign. Our political editor Brent Edwards wonders why and he joins me now. So Brent, there was a report out last week. Why wasn't there much coverage of it? Well obviously it was just caught up in the hurly-burly of the last week of Parliament. You know, the the politics around that and the break for then people going off on the election campaign. But, But that report was from the Auditor General's office and it had a good look at the well-being report that the Treasury put out last November and it, and it was the first well-being report the Treasury had done under the amended Public Finance Act so where it was trying to really set out exactly what the level of well-being was in this country you know across a range of indicators economic and, and social and the like and so you know the Auditor General's report um, essentially said the Treasury had done a good job but um, it thought um, there needed to be more public engagement and public consultation around it. Um, I think some of the terms they, they needed to use more friendly, um, friendly sort of user-friendly language to provoke that greater public engagement and conversation. And I think the sense that you know had this report come out in November last year, and I, I can't really remember that there was much coverage or comment on that at the time. Um, so, and that's the thing that there should be a public debate, public discussion around the issues that it raises. Your column says Treasury didn't support James Shaw's approach. Yeah, well, b- before they made the changes to the Public Finance Act, which introduced this um, requirement to report on well-being, you know, James Shaw had wanted it to go further and be much more precise. In, in what it would do, uh, and the Treasury didn't back that, so it came came up with you know what the government or what Labor had proposed around that. But it, it still though um, lays out a fairly good case around the extent of wellbeing, and, and the things that came out of the, the Treasury report is that, that look we we are actually better off than we were, uh, we're generally happier, uh, relatively safe, certainly comparatively, um, and the like. But there are issues. You know, while child poverty might be falling, there are still too many children staying in poverty for ta- far too long. There are issues around bullying at schools, um, psychological problems for, for young people, you know, one of the highest teenage suicide rates in, in, the, in the Western world, um, and particularly for Maori and Pacifica, you know, big gaps um, between their well-being and the well-being of non-Maori. And of course... None of that actually fits with any of the political parties' prescriptions because on one side you've probably got the opposition saying, you know, we're going to hell in a handbasket and on the other side, you know, government probably saying everything's hunky-dory. Um, that wellbeing report doesn't probably fit either narrative as well. I mean, it shows a mixed picture. Things are improving but other things aren't improving well enough. Is there a lot of interest in it? 
Well, we haven't seen it, mm. um, you know, and so that would, was the interesting thing. Um, I mean, of course, one of the things has been that, that the National Party, um, from the very start, has always been sceptical about the wellbeing approach. Um, so it probably isn't going to talk about it. I mean, it, and it will be interesting to see if there's a change of government, what changes it will make to processes around that, because... One of the other things is that those wellbeing reports are then meant to feed into the budget process and into other government decisions, that, that, that it'll drive government decisions by knowing the extent of wellbeing and trying to measure wellbeing in that way. Um, but, and actually, nor have you seen the government really, really pushing or promoting it. I mean, in part, maybe because it doesn't feel that it's made enough progress on sort of the wellbeing factors that it's laid out. Well, Treasury is due to report again. When's that? Yeah, tre- under under the Public Finance Act, the, then the Treasury it reports every four years. So last year's report 2022. So it'll be 2026, which will be election year. But I would think on the timing, its report will probably come out after the election. But the uh, Auditor General, um, John Ryan, has made a number of suggestions to the Treasury about what it can do to improve the report, particularly around making it much more engaging for the public and and to get them involved in discussion. And the Treasury has come back and said it intends to do that. So next time round, there should be perhaps a greater public discussion around these issues, and then maybe political parties will take note. Mm. Brent Edwards, thank you. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.